we observe this weekend. We thank you for all those men and women who, as we sang earlier, loved country more than self, wanted to honor you by sacrificing their lives for their country. I pray that you would be with their families uh, today as they mourn those losses. We pray that you be with the families of all those who have lost loved ones this past week in our country and in our families and in our church. May you be near to them. May you give them the peace and comfort that only you can give. May you lead others uh, to put their faith and trust in you for their salvation. We thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you work everything out for good, even when we can't see it. And your plan is still perfect. May we continue to trust you with that plan. In Jesus' name, amen. We all have our favorite foods. Those we either go to if we've had a rough day or look forward to splurging on for a special occasion. But here are some of the favorite, albeit bizarre, foods of some of the most famous people in power in the history of the world. The first one is none other than our first president, George Washington. Apparently, one of Washington's favorite foods was called mushroom ketchup. It was a condiment made of mushrooms, anchovies, and horseradish. Yikes. I wouldn't want to leave the responsibility who would bring the condiments to my Memorial Day barbecue to that guy, would you? King Henry VIII of England, most remembered for his six marriages and separation from the Catholic Church, thus establishing the Church of England, had a large range of culinary favorites as well. Not only did he enjoy traditional English food, but his favorites also included swan, whale, peacock, and grilled beaver's tails. I had never heard about anyone eating that until I found that out. You'd be taking quite the gamble if you received a dinner invitation from that guy. And King Henry I, who ruled England in the 12th century, was a huge fan of eating jawless, sharp-teethed, just simply terrifying-looking eels called lampreys. Look at those things. Those are the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? And King Henry I, in fact, was such a big fan of eating lampreys, he ate so much of them against his physician's advice that his favorite food ended up killing him. All right, I'll spare you from having a look at those anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, would I would just say that none, I would say that none of these guys would just eat their favorite foods and nothing else, but in the case of Henry I, you probably could make the case that he did. As humans, we can't physically just eat one food because we need the nutrients from all kinds of different types of foods. But as humans, there is only one spiritual food we need because it does give us anything and everything we could ever, ever need at our deepest core. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, and as Dr. Dave Allen touched on last week, we left Jesus in a conversation he was having with the remnants of the crowd that were part of his miraculous feeding of tens of thousands of people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus had sent the crowd away, including his disciples, who started back across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they're in the middle of the sea, get caught in a storm, 
witnessed Jesus walking on the waves towards them, and then immediately ended up on the other side of the lake at a town called Gennesaret over here. Meanwhile, remnants from that gigantic crowd woke up the next morning, didn't find Jesus there anymore, and went looking for him in Capernaum, which was uh, a neighboring town to Gennesaret, uh, uh, more north up there. Upon finding that Jesus wasn't there but a neighboring Gennesaret, they hightailed it over there. Jesus called them out for their true heart's motivation, and it wasn't even to witness more miracles. All they wanted was for Jesus to constantly, miraculously feed them all the time. That's all they wanted. When Jesus tells them not to focus their lives on the physical things that only the world can give, but on the spiritual things that will give them eternal life, the people ask what good things they should do in order to earn that eternal life. Jesus responds that there are no amount of good things they can do to earn eternal life. They have to put their faith in him and that he would be the one to give them that eternal life. That's what brings us to the crowd's response to that bold statement in our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be picking back up in verse 30. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 6 verse 30 or look it up on your favorite app on your smartphone. In John chapter 6, verse 30, we read, So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They say, Yeah, well, if you're everything you claim to be, then prove it. Jesus had literally just fed tens of thousands of people with only five loaves of bread and two fish, and yet these people are demanding he give them another sign to make them believe. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the people understood that Jesus was the prophet that was supposed to be like Moses, and that he knew God face to face, and the messianic king that was prophesied throughout the Jewish scriptures, but they still only understood him as the earthly political figure that they wanted to forcibly make king right after Jesus' miraculous food multiplication. As such, the sign that they're demanding from Jesus here in verse 30 is for him to go ride into Jerusalem, kick out Governor Pontius Pilate and the entire Roman garrison stationed in the area, and start making good on all, all of those prophecies about an abundant kingdom of peace. If you're supposed to be the prophesied messianic king, they say, go prove it by going and setting up your kingdom. What are you waiting for? They're still only seeing and thinking about everything in an earthly way. The people follow that demand up with a challenge, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. According to one biblical scholar, a prevalent belief in Judaism, which was taught by many rabbis, was that the messianic kingdom would be accompanied by the return of manna. And that's what they're getting at here. For anyone who isn't familiar with manna, back when the Jewish people were first freed from Egyptian slavery by God, under Moses' leadership, God dropped little flakes of a bread-like substance 
that people would gather from the ground each day. And that was called manna. And it literally in Hebrew means, what is it? They couldn't figure out what it was. They had no other name for it, so they just called it, what is it? Or manna. So the people here are referencing that belief that if Jesus was the messianic king they were hoping for, where was the new manna that was supposed to accompany that kingdom? More than that, though, they were challenging Jesus as the prophet that was supposed to be like Moses. They, they're, they're essentially saying, Moses gave us the manna the first time around, and that manna fed 2.5 million people every day. Where's yours? How are you going to top that? What the people failed to remember, though, was that God only gave them that manna the first time around after they were grumbling against Moses and complaining that he had freed them from slavery to go die from starvation in the wilderness. They complained, we were better off back in Egypt where we could eat whatever we wanted and completely forgot the intense oppression they really had been under. In a funny but really sad twist of irony, the manna connected to Moses only originated from the people challenging Moses' authority, and the people in John 6 are using that experience as the foundation to challenge Jesus' authority. You see the irony there? But not only were the people in John 6 forgetting the setting for what brought about the old manna, but they were forgetting who was the one who really and actually gave it to them. It wasn't Moses. It was God. And that's what Jesus reminds them of, verses 32 through 33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is using that already prevalent Jewish belief that, man, that new manna would accompany the messianic kingdom to say, yes, there is new manna that is accompanying the messianic kingdom, but it's not the manna you're looking for. I'm the new manna that has come down to accompany the messianic kingdom. And in both cases, it's God giving both the old and new manna. He is the source of both. Both came down from heaven, and both originated out of rebellion. The old manna, again, was born out of the rebellion of the Israelites, really against God. And the new manna was physically born because of the rebellion of all of humanity against God. Those are the similarities between both kinds of manna. But here are the main differences between both kinds of manna. The old manna was temporary. Not only did it burn off by the afternoon each day and only appear six out of the seven days of the week, but once the nation of Israel started settling the promised land and harvesting what they had planted there, the manna stopped. But the true bread is eternal. He will never cease to exist nor will his kingdom and authority cease to exist, nor will the life he gives cease to exist. 
Secondly, the old bread from heaven was only meant for Israel and the Jewish people. But what does Jesus say about the true bread from heaven at the end of verse 33? That he is meant for the entire world. Thirdly, the main and only function of the old manna was to physically feed the nation of Israel. And the people challenging Jesus in John 6 only went looking for Jesus so he could keep physically feeding them. But this whole time, and here once again, Jesus is redirecting their minds and hearts to that they need to focus their lives on what will spiritually give them true life. That's why Jesus refers to himself as the true bread of life. But once again, the people still don't get what Jesus is driving at. Jesus is using spiritual imagery to describe a spiritual concept. But once again, the people just see everything he's talking about as something physical. That's why they respond with verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. In connection with the Jewish belief of a new manna accompanying the messianic kingdom, this is a demand to just hurry up and get things moving. If Jesus would just start the new manna flowing, stop talking and just start the new manna flowing, then everything else connected to the messianic kingdom could finally start. But again, Jesus knew his visit on earth that first time around was not the right timing for that. That's the purpose of Jesus' second coming. This time around, Jesus was teaching people about the spiritual truths of God's kingdom and how one could enter the kingdom of heaven. The people's response here is also a very human one. What does this verse look eerily similar to that we just read? Lord, always give us this bread. Anybody have any idea? I don't, I don't know if, if you said it. I just didn't hear you. But the response from the Samaritan woman that Jesus told about living water while he talked with her by Jacob's well back in John 4. You remember? We spent, we spent several weeks on that passage. Jesus talks to her about living water that will continually bubble up like a spring and result in eternal life. What's her response? She says, please, sir, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to drag myself out to this well day after day after day in the heat of the day to get water. Again, she's only seeing what Jesus is talking to her in a physical way. Just as the Samaritan woman first thought Jesus was referring to physical water, Jesus was actually referring to spiritual water. More specifically, the spiritual life and the spiritual sustenance that continually bubbles up from the indwelling Holy Spirit following one po one's point of salvation and that seal of the Holy Spirit resulting in eternal life. In both cases, the people Jesus is talking to are only thinking about the water or the food in purely physical and worldly ways, seeking to simply have an eternal solution to their physical and worldly desires. But the eternal solution does not start with the physical and worldly. 
The eternal solution starts with the spiritual part of us, our very soul. Entrance into God's spiritual kingdom of heaven requires a spiritual rebirth. That spiritual rebirth then transforms what our physical and worldly desires are. And that spiritual rebirth can only come from a faith in Jesus. That's what Jesus responds with next, verse 35. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He was hinting at it before, but now Jesus comes right out and says, everything that I was talking about in connection with the true bread of life and heaven, that's me. I was and am referring to myself. And that's why I brought up the Samaritan woman a minute ago. This conversation in John 6 harkens back to that conversation. We have the same response from the people in John 6 as the Samaritan woman. And we even have the same reference to that living water in verse 35 that we just read. The Samaritan woman eventually responds in faith. The Jewish crowd that followed Jesus after the feeding of tens of thousands responds to Jesus in anger and grumbling, as we find out later on. Both were similar conversations, talking about true spiritual sustenance, but they had much different results. How will you respond to Jesus as the true bread of life and the only way to heaven? With faith or with indignation? With surrender or with offense? With new life and the only true source of spiritual sustenance? or with just continuing on living your life the way you always have. When Jesus refers to himself as the true bread of life, and that those who come to him will never spiritually go wanting again, he means it in every way and in every aspect. It all starts with moving from a state of spiritual death into a state of spiritual life. And that only starts with Jesus. One must recognize that their sin keeps them in a state of spiritual death that will only result in an eternal state of spiritual darkness known as hell and no amount of good things they can do, prayers they pray, or sacraments they partake in will change that. We cannot save ourselves from it. The only way for one to be given new spiritual life is to be saved from that state of sin and death. Enter Jesus. The fitting payment for our sin is death, as God's word explains. If no one else paid that payment on our behalf as one who didn't sin themselves, then we simply pay that ourselves, ending with the ultimate state of spiritual death. But God loves us so much that he could not let humanity continue down that road without any hope. So because we were helpless to pay that payment for our sin ourselves and still escape it, he chose to pay it for us. The second person of the Trinity came to earth as fully God and fully man. Fully God to be a sinless and perfect sacrifice and fully man to pay for humanity's sin once and for all. He took our place on the cross, paid for our sin with his last breath, and then proved his deity three days later when he rose again. 
When one comes to a place of understanding that they cannot save themselves from their own sin and that that sin will only result in ultimate spiritual death, sees Jesus as having paid the penalty for their sin, uses that as the foundation for asking God in repentance for forgiveness of that sin, and then takes Jesus for all of who he is, including the king in obedience to him with the way they seek to live their lives every moment after that, the Bible explains that they are then moved from that state of death into a state of life. Jesus explains it in John 3 as being given the new birth of new life. Everything in that person's life changes. They are now freed from the effects and power of sin and addiction in their lives and freed to living the way God always intended them to live. They are now given the hope of eternal life with God after they physically die. They are given a brand new way to view the world and everything that is happening in the world. They are given the peace of knowing that they are God's child. He has his perfect plan. And even though experiences in this life will be painful and there will be constant trials, nothing he has in his plan is is meant for our destruction and is only meant for our growth and therefore our good. All of that is wrapped up in Romans 12 too. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. How? How is any of that possible? By Jesus, as the true bread of life and true living water, giving us the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to be that bubbling spring of living water within us. The Holy Spirit is the one who then starts to transform our lives and everything about who we once were to be made more and more like Jesus and the life that God always wanted for us. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to overcome sin and temptation and addiction or a gender identity, sexual orientation or sexual relationship outside of God's created blueprint that we once identified with and indulged in. And it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who breaks those chains. The Holy Spirit is the one who moves in us to remind us of who we are now as God's children. And the Holy Spirit is the actual seal on us, protecting our souls to be fully redeemed. When we come to God through what Jesus did to pay for our sin, and we repent of that sin, and accept Jesus for all of who he is, both Savior and and king, the Holy Spirit becomes our indwelling spiritual sustenance in every way. He is the one who fills us with the peace that can only come from God himself. Nothing we can manufacture ourselves and nothing we can derive from the world. A peace that no one who doesn't have that new life in Jesus can understand. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills us with the strength and power that only God himself can give. Nothing we can come up with ourselves and nothing we can derive from this world. The peace of God and the strength and power of God 
are manifestations of spiritual sustenance or spiritual bread and living water that will get us through any and every situation and set of circumstances we will ever experience in this world. The spiritual sustenance of Holy Spirit given joy is what we can spiritually feed on during the most extreme times of loss, physical or emotional pain, confusion, or darkness, for it transcends those experiences. Happiness is fleeting because it's only based on our circumstances. God-given joy is sustenance we can have, we can be given, no matter what the circumstances are, and is completely outside of reliance upon our circumstances. In the hardest times to love someone else, whether it be outside of our box of comfort or a difficult marriage or mean or obnoxious people we have to work with or be around or a loved one who will just not get on the path of God or times when we feel unloved or lonely, it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the love to sustain us and to give it to someone else. It's the Holy Spirit who gives the sustenance of meaning and purpose. He's the one who moves in us to remind us who we are as a child of God and a follower of Jesus. Like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he's the one who reminds us that God does not exist to serve us. We exist to serve God. Jesus has already given us a life's purpose to sustain us. And that purpose is to glorify God with the way that we live our lives. And Jesus has already given us a life's mission to sustain us. And that mission has nothing to do with us. It's to share him and his hope of new life with others and bring more people into his kingdom. Our new life starts and continues for eternity with Jesus. And it's Jesus' giving of the Holy Spirit who sustains us in every way. Our very relationship with God, one for us by Jesus' death and resurrection, is a form of sustenance for us. Our connection in prayer with him as we cry out to him, process through things with him, and entrust everything to him, feeds our souls as we release our concerns, our fears, and our pains over to his sovereignty. And there's one more way Jesus is the true bread of life and living water to sustain us. Jesus said, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The writer of Hebrews says that today God speaks to us through Jesus. And what does the apostle John refer to Jesus as, as the, at the very beginning of this book? The word of God. Jesus, as the embodiment of the Word of God, also spiritually sustains us through the reading of the Word of God. Paul calls the Word of God living, active, and powerful. Its words are actual power, breathing new life into us, convicting us of sin we still haven't gotten right with God yet, and revealing to us the truth of who God is, his way of salvation for us, and all that we have to look forward to in the future. Yeah. 
And as Dr. Allen brought to us last week from Hebrews 12, as Jesus looked beyond the cross to what awaited for him after all that he was about to suffer through, that hope sustained him through all the beating, mocking, whipping, crucifying, and dying. We are to take him as an example and likewise use the hope of what awaits us in the future to sustain us through everything we will suffer through on this earth now. What is that? Jesus is coming back for us. There will be a day when Jesus will partially descend from heaven with a tremendous shout and call up those who have put their faith in him for their salvation to join him. He will bring all the souls who have gone to be with him before that point back with him, resurrect their physical bodies and transform them in an instant into glorified bodies free from sin, decay, pain, sickness, and death then all those who are still alive at that point will also be caught up to be with Jesus and also be given glorified bodies fit for an eternity in heaven. From that moment forward, as God's word says, we have the promise of knowing that we will be with Jesus forever. There will never be a moment where we won't physically be with Jesus after that, whether it be when we return with him back to earth to rule with him in his messianic kingdom government or when we enjoy a brand new created heavens and new earth. The hope of all that awaits us gives us one more gift to sustain us through this difficult life on earth. Truly, when Jesus says he is the true bread of life and the living water, the only origin of spiritual sustenance in every way for our lives. He meant it. As we've been reminded of, he really is in every way. So let's read verse 35 again. With all the many many and varied ways Jesus is all of this, still fresh in our minds, and take it with us into the rest of our lives. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise. All of us who come to you in that repentance and find our salvation in you, you are the true bread of life and the living water. You will never abandon us. You will always sustain us. And Lord, even though We will go through painful trials and we will go through times of darkness. You will be with us every step of the way and all of who you are will sustain us every step of the way. Let us take every aspect of who you are as the true bread of life and living water with us each day for the rest of our lives and let us face each day with the hope of what awaits us in the future. Empower us with the peace and strength and joy of the Holy Spirit as we go out from this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.